Good morning. You picked the best day to come to church. You really did. Uh, you really did. Because the passage we're in today, it's incredible. It's, <clears throat> it's a passage you're familiar with. It's one of those that I'm so familiar with. When Mark assigned it to me, I thought, oh, good, I know this one. I didn't know this one. There is so much here. So I want you to do yourselves a favor. Who deserves a favor more than you, right? Do yourselves a favor today as we go through this. Pretend like you've never heard it before, okay? We're gonna, you, you know how usually we read the whole passage ahead of time? I'm not going to do that. We're going to take it a verse at a time or a ch- section at a time. We're just going to go through this, the true story of Jesus before the Sanhedrin and the denials of Peter. And I want you just to see if you can go through it as if you're hearing it for the first time, reading it for the first time. I would imagine everyone in this room, me included, has things in your past that you regret. It could be a string of bad decisions that have taken you down a dark and painful road. Today we're going to walk that road with Peter. And if you check most commentaries, they're going to tell you that the theme of chapter 14 of Mark is the abandonment of Jesus. But I'm, it's my prayer that as we go through this together, we're going to see that, yeah, it's about the abandonment of Jesus, but the bigger theme for you and me is that we need to stay as close to Jesus as possible and never let go. Pastor Mark has been leading us through the Gospel of Mark so faithfully, so wonderfully. And I know each week we just come and he just shares from his heart and his love and his faithfulness to the Word of God. Uh, Pastor Mark hurt his back, so he is not here this weekend. So we're going to pray for him, okay? We're going to pray for him in a moment. And Neil, Neil, you were amazing at Rock of Ages. Neil shared his testimony so, so open, so honest. There's something about a man that isn't afraid to just tell it as it is. Thank you for that. I love how you love the Lord. I love how you love us that you would share that with us. Thank you. Amazing. Let's open in prayer together. Father, thank you for this beautiful day and, and thank you for this passage of scripture you've given us to study. Lord, we thank you for men like Neil that just love you and that just come to be your student and study and become as much like you as we possibly can. And we thank you for Pastor Mark. What a blessing he is to us, his faithfulness, his leadership, and his teaching. And we pray, Lord, you touch his back and heal him. We want him back as quickly as possible. Father, please, uh, we know how much he wants to be here, and he's probably chomping at the bit to get out of bed and get out, get here. But please, Father, keep him right where you need him until he's healed, we pray. And now, Lord, as we open our Bibles, Please do what you do every week. You be our teacher. Don't let me get in the way. Father, show us the truth of your word. And, and as we see new truth today, I pray it changes us. I pray none of us leave here unchanged. We thank you now this hour in Christ's name. Amen. We're finishing up Mark chapter 14. Um, yeah, I'm excited. This is, this is incredible. So as you turn to Mark 14, verse 53 to 72, let me kind of set the context, remind us of what's been happening. Jesus has had his last supper with the disciples. And then Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. 
that he prayed for hours. Remember Pastor Mark showed us that last week. Jesus prayed for hours, and what were the disciples doing? (laughs) Yeah, they were sleeping, like some of us. Um, Jesus woke them repeatedly and warned them to stay awake, stay alert. But their eyes were too heavy to pay any attention to the needs of Jesus at that moment, and their eyes were too heavy to be prepared for the temptation that all 11 of them were about to face. If you and if I want spiritual victory in our lives, then we need to do exactly what Jesus told his disciples to do. We need to be alert. We need to be watchful. We must be alert in prayer and depend on God for everything. Spiritual unpreparedness leads to spiritual disaster as we're going to see in this passage. While Jesus was speaking to his disciples, Judas arrived with his horde of Roman soldiers, chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders. The Roman soldiers had their short swords, and the officers of the temple guard brought their weapons. They had their wooden clubs. And the disciples abandoned Jesus just like he said that they would. The disciples did not reject Jesus, They left him because their faith collapsed when they realized that Jesus was not going to resist arrest. And they might be arrested too. We can all relate to that, can't we? We tend not to make our best decisions when we're under stress and we're afraid. As the saying goes, life is 10% what you experience and 90% how you respond to it. So Jesus stood alone and the disciples disappeared into the night. We're going to read what happens next, but first let me give you the outline for today. This passage breaks down into the faithfulness of Jesus and the failure of Peter. Now remember, you're going to pretend like you have never heard this before. So try to Imagine that as you read verse 53 with me of Mark 14. Remember, you've never heard this story before. Look at verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. If you didn't know this story, you'd think, this is great news. You were worried about Jesus. They came and they arrested him, but look where they took him. They took him to the house of the high priest. Caiaphas was the high priest. And look, Caiaphas had a full house this night. All the chief priests were there, along with the elders and the scribes. Scribes were men who devoted their lives to studying Scripture. This house was full of the spiritual leaders of Israel. They were supposed to know and love God's Word. Surely this is the safest place in the world for Jesus to be right now. Wouldn't you expect these leaders to be preparing to defend Jesus against those Gentile Roman guards, those occupiers? Hold that thought and look at verse 54. Again, pretend you've never read this story before. Look how verse 54 begins. Peter had followed Jesus at a distance. Let's stop there. This is also really good news. Peter is exactly the guy you want following because Peter's our disciple of action, right? Peter's the guy, he had a sword out just a few minutes ago in the garden. Perfect. Peter is certainly going to rescue Jesus. This is great, so let's read on. Peter had followed him at a distance, 
right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Peter, oh Peter, what are you doing? Why are you just sitting there warming yourself when Jesus is inside? And look who Peter's with. See who Peter's with? He's hanging out with the officers of the guard and all those other thugs that just grabbed Jesus and hauled him away. When these men came to arrest Jesus just a few minutes ago, remember Peter drew his sword and he was ready to fight side by side with Jesus. But now, he's not standing with Jesus. See what it says? Peter is following at a distance. His distance already foreshadows his denial. Let me ask you a personal question that I've been asking myself all week and all day today. Are you walking closely with Jesus today? Are you as close to him this morning as you can possibly get? Or have you dropped back for whatever reason to put a little distance between you and your Savior? Any distance between us and our Lord is an open invitation to trouble. Peter's denial actually began the moment he put distance between himself and his Savior. When we're afraid, we usually do one of two things. We either cling to Jesus or we let go. Peter let go. Think. Think how our lives would be different if in every situation we face, every single situation we face, what if we held tight to Jesus and we never allowed anything to come between, between us and our Savior? I have a photo I want to show you because I know you haven't heard this story before, so I want you to be able to visualize it. So we, now we're going to see what really happened inside of this house with all these religious leaders as they brought Jesus to them. I'm going to read verses 55 and 59 to 59 as you look at this photo. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were finding none. For many were giving false testimony against Jesus, and yet their testimony was not consistent. And some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. Caiaphas, the high priest, presided over the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of Israel. There are 71 members of the Sanhedrin. They had strict rules for protecting the rights of the accused except for tonight. This council was supposed to uphold the truth, but they couldn't find any. They couldn't find any truth, so they just made stuff up about Jesus. And they weren't very good at it because none of their witnesses could get their stories straight. Now, typically, the Sanhedrin sternly warned every witness against rumor and hearsay. But this council didn't want the truth. All they wanted was a conviction. This trial of Jesus is what we call a kangaroo court. Kangaroo courts became popular in the mid-1800s and during the California gold rush. They would set up these supposedly legal trials to quickly deal with claim jumpers and get rid of them in a supposedly legal way. 
A kangaroo court gives the appearance of a fair trial even though the verdict has already been decided before the trial begins. Now, the Roman government allowed the Sanhedrin to exist to be a buffer between them and the Jews. The Sanhedrin could make decisions of a religious nature, and they could decide some political things, but that was about the scope of their powers. We're going to see in the next chapter that the Sanhedrin will take Jesus to Pontius Pilate because the Sanhedrin doesn't have the power of capital punishment. They're going to need the Roman governor for that. Something else we should know. The customary meeting place for the Sanhedrin was in a place called the Chamber of Hewn Stone, which was north of the temple sanctuary. The Sanhedrin met daily, every day, except for the Sabbath and holy days. They always met during the day, and all serious hearings were held in public. But Jesus was not taken to the temple in the daytime, and he was not questioned in public. Jesus was brought to the home of the high priest at night and in private. This was an illegal, backroom, sham, phony affair. You know, Mark doesn't list all of the false charges they were throwing at Jesus. He only mentions one. Let's look at this one specific lie in verse 58. The witness, false witness, has said, We heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Let's turn together to John chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. We're in Mark. Just turn over to John. This is going to help us understand what these false witnesses are talking about. They're actually going way back to something Jesus said about three years before this. This is what Jesus said the first time he visited Jerusalem when he began his public ministry. Basically, what the witnesses are doing is they're quoting some of Jesus' words, and then they're adding their own erroneous embellishments uh, to it. But let's read first together what Jesus actually said back in John chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. The Jews then responded to him, saying, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Now, throughout the Greco-Roman world at this time, the destruction or the desecration of a place of worship was a capital offense. So this is a serious charge they're throwing at Jesus. And we can learn by comparing the gospel record that the religious leaders, they knew Jesus was not speaking about the physical temple that they loved more than God himself. They knew he was speaking about his body. So this makes this the most diabolical kind of lie that they hurled at Jesus because it is an untruth with an element of truth. Tennyson said, A lie that is all a lie may be met and fought outright, but a lie that is partly the truth is a harder matter to fight. Every generation from that first century until now wants to discredit Jesus by twisting his words for their own benefit. Still going on today. However, however, in a way truer than his accusers could have ever imagined, Jesus' resurrected body did replace that temple that they cherished. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed about 30 years later. 
But in Jesus, we don't need a temple. We don't need a building of any kind to have direct access to God. And in Jesus, God's Holy Spirit comes and dwells in the temple of our heart, a temple made without hands. Let's read on, verse 60 to 61. Remember, you haven't heard this story before, so this is all new. And the high priest rose, and he came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you make no answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and made no answer. Caiaphas, the high priest, knew that his fake trial was a total bust. This was a dismal failure. His witnesses were inconsistent and incompetent. Caiaphas had nothing to indict Jesus. I'll bet Caiaphas was red with rage when he rose to his feet. I imagine that room in his house got really quiet as he strode forward, probably with big, long steps to get to Jesus. And I imagine his robes were probably billowing out behind him. And if he was wearing ceremonial jewelry, it was clicking and clacking as he went forward to face Jesus, this bully that he was. I imagine the high priest got right in Jesus' face. And I bet you he snarled. And I bet you he had bad breath. And he said, Are you not going to speak up and answer these charges? If you didn't know this story, wouldn't you expect Jesus right then to go ahead and answer the charges and defend himself? Think about who Jesus is. Think about it. For his first witness... Jesus could have called any of the tens of thousands of people that saw his miraculous powers, that heard his divine words, and knew his flawless character. Jesus' witness list could have included everyone he ever taught, healed, and raised from the dead. He could have started with those who were once blind but now could see. Then he could have called on all that were used to be deaf, crippled, sick, leprous, demon-possessed, and yes, he could call those that used to be deceased. If Jesus wanted to, of course he wouldn't, but if he wanted to, he could even called on the, he could have even called on the demons of hell to come testify, because the one thing the demons knew for sure is they knew exactly who Jesus was. He is indeed the son of the living God. Jesus could have called down angels from heaven. Jesus could have destroyed everyone in that room with just a thought. But Jesus did none of these things. Why? Because Jesus didn't come to defend himself. Jesus came to sacrifice himself for you and for me. Let's read on, verses 61 to 62. But Jesus kept silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus was silent the first time Caiaphas asked him a question. Why did Jesus answer the second time? We can find out by reading Matthew's Gospel. I'm going to put Matthew 26, 63 on the screen. This is really interesting. Matthew 26, 63. But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you, which means I charge you under oath, 
by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. This legal wording by the high priest made Jesus legally required to answer. So Jesus answered. He replied. And when Jesus, when Jesus answers the question, he answers the question. Look what he said. Point blank range. Right in the high priest's self-righteous face. Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God, and I have all the power and glory of God. Jesus' answer to the high priest basically said this. He said, you're standing in judgment of me, but I will be the ultimate judge of you. The religious leaders in that room didn't realize it, but Jesus was not on trial. They were. They were on trial before the living God. We will all have to stand before Jesus one day and give an account of our love for him as our Lord and our God or our, or our rejection of him as something less than that. Here's something amazing. Do you realize that if any one of those despicable leaders in that house had actually listened and actually believed what Jesus just told them under oath that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. If they, any one of those men had believed, Jesus would have forgiven him and saved him from his sins right there on the spot. But their ears were not tuned to the truth. Their minds were already made up. Are our, are our ears open today? Are we listening for God's truth? Let's read verses 63 and 64 together of Mark 14. And tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned Jesus to be deserving of death. Tearing your clothes in ancient Jerusalem was a sign of profound grief. You know, the high priest was actually forbidden to tear his clothes unless he witnessed a blasphemy. Caiaphas's grief was as phony as the charge of blasphemy against Jesus. Caiaphas didn't realize it, but when he tore his clothes, he was signifying that God was going to tear the priesthood away from him. In contrast, Jesus' clothes, even when he was crucified, were never torn. They were kept intact. Let's pause here for one minute to talk about something I think we probably all face. It can be very discouraging for us to share Christ with someone that we care about, maybe over and over again, maybe for years, and see that person not believe and maybe not even listen seriously. And when that happens, it's very easy for us to take it personally and, and, and decide, well, okay, I guess I don't have the gift of evangelism. I'm never sharing Christ again with that person or anybody for that matter. I'm just no good at it. If you've ever felt that way, remember what we just read here in Mark. You know, Jesus was pretty good at sharing the gospel. He was a pretty good communicator. And he did all those divine miracles to back up every word he said, to prove everything he said was true. And he did that for years. And people like these leaders still would not believe. So when we share the good news of Christ with someone, 
Let's not be discouraged. Let's just be faithful. Just keep telling them the truth and leave the outcome to God, just as Jesus did here. I'm going to show you a second photo. Again, you haven't heard this story, so I want you to see what happens next. Verse 65. And some began to spit at Jesus and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. These men spit into his face. They blindfolded him. They hit him with their fists. And they taunted him. I'm going to put Matthew 26, 67 to 68 on the screen. Because Matthew gives us a little more information about this. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hit you? They made a joke out of Jesus' ability to prophesy, but they didn't realize that every one of his prophecies came true. We're in Mark 14. Let's turn back to Mark chapter 10. Just turn back a few pages to see just one of the prophecies that came true. Jesus spoke this before he came into Jerusalem. Mark 10, verses 33 to 34. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. This terrible treatment of Jesus also fulfills a prophecy that was written 700 years before this. I'm going to put Isaiah 50 verse 6 on the screen. Isaiah 50 verse 6. Look what Isaiah wrote 700 years before this. A messianic prophecy. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Spitting, punching, slapping, taunting. As ugly as this is, this is only a preview only a preview of what Jesus would endure when he's handed over to be crucified. I know this is hard to read. It's hard to listen to. And it's hard to talk about. But God has recorded it in his word so you and I can take a hard look at what Jesus went through to save us. If we really understand the humiliation, the pain, and the suffering that Jesus endured on our behalf, it will change how we live. It has to change how we live if we really understand it. Here are five ways that understanding Christ's suffering should change us. There are more than five, of course, but here are five. First, we must never be casual about our sin. We can never be casual about our sin. Even what we might call just a little sin is a spit or a slap in his face. Secondly, if we really understand what Jesus went through, then when people do us wrong, we must be ready to forgive them. When people do us wrong, we must be ready to forgive them. Look what our Lord endured to forgive us. How can we be unwilling to forgive others? The third thing, if we get ridiculed for Jesus' sake, we have our Lord's example to follow. 
If we ever get mocked or ridiculed for our Lord's sake, we have his example to follow. He never argued. He stood calmly and confidently on the faithfulness of God. The fourth thing we should should change about us if we realize what Jesus endured for us is that the world is eager to put Jesus to shame. We should be eager to bring him glory with our words and our actions. The world is eager to put Jesus to shame, but we should be eager to bring him glory with our words and our actions. And the fifth thing, if you're going to smile today, this is the time to do it. Because the fifth thing that we can get from the, take from the suffering of Jesus is we can rejoice every day in his finished work. We can rejoice every minute of every day, no matter what's going on in our lives, with the finished work of Jesus. Because Jesus chose to be condemned so you and I would never be condemned. We would be set free forever. I have one more photo to show you. This will be the last one. You don't know this story, remember? So the rest of chapter 14 takes us back to our brother Peter. And since you're pretending that you don't know what Peter's been doing, wouldn't you imagine that all this time that Jesus was in the house being questioned by the council, that Peter would be preparing to march into that house and give his testimony toward Jesus? Isn't that what he's doing? He's probably studying. He's probably getting his facts straight, right? Let's read verses 66 to 68. And as Peter was below in the courtyard... One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You too were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. Peter's not preparing to help Jesus. Peter's denying he ever knew him. Large Mediterranean homes in that time typically had a courtyard in the center of the house with an open atrium. And the reference to Peter being below seems to suggest that Jesus was being tried in an upstairs room. But before we look at the three denials of Peter, let's remind ourselves of what Jesus said to Peter and the disciples earlier that day. You're in Mark 14. Look at Mark 14, 29 to 31. Just at the beginning of this chapter, middle of the chapter. Mark 14, verses 29 to 31. Jesus just said this a matter of an hour or so ago. But Peter said to Jesus, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to Peter, Truly I say to you, that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. That just happened like maybe an hour, hour and a half before this. The three denials of Peter's, Peter's three denials of Jesus then, should hit us like three sledgehammer blows to show us how quickly even our most noble convictions can crumble under pressure when we're spiritually unprepared. It's easy to judge Peter rather harshly, isn't it? But what would you and what would I have done in Peter's place? You know? We need to be very, very careful how we look or how we judge the sins that somebody else commits that we haven't committed yet. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we'll agree that the real question isn't what sins we've committed, 
The real question is, what sins would we commit if we faced the same serious pressures, temptations, and opportunities that maybe some others have faced? Like Peter. Haven't we all made promises to Jesus we haven't kept? A man like Peter can fall. Can't we all? Let's look at the first denial together. As Peter was below in the courtyard, a servant girl noticed him by the fire. That's interesting. Peter was doing everything he could to be inconspicuous. I wonder why the servant girl noticed him. Probably because everybody else was congratulating themselves for Jesus' capture, and Peter was probably the only one in the courtyard that looked miserable. Peter wanted to be inconspicuous, but he became the center of attention. You know, if we think we can hide from our sin, we're mistaken, just like Peter. Let's look at what Luke tells us about this. I'm going to put this on the screen. It's really interesting. Luke 22, verse 56. Fascinating point I hadn't noticed before. And a certain servant girl, seeing Peter as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. You see that? The servant girl was walking by. She took a really close look at Peter. Maybe she moved in and studied him for a few minutes just to look at him. Peter probably didn't notice her because he was too downcast, but as soon as she spoke up and said this man was with him, well, Peter heard that. In verse 68, Peter denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. Peter just made a total denial of Jesus. I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. The word know in the Greek means a theoretical knowledge. So what Peter just did is he just said, I don't know Jesus in theory, and I don't know Jesus in practice. I have no idea who you're talking about. I have no knowledge of Jesus, Jesus whatsoever. That's what Peter just said. As rough as that is, it gets worse. Let's look at the second denial, verses 68 to 70. I know you didn't know there were three because you haven't heard this story before, but there are three. Here's the second one, verses 68 to 70. And Peter went out onto the porch, and the maid saw him and once again uh, said to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, Peter was denying it. Things were getting too hot for Peter in the courtyard, so he made his way out onto the porch or the entryway to get away from those people. Can you imagine the torment Peter was going through? We know how much he loved Jesus. We know that in his heart he wanted to be upstairs defending Jesus, but here he was, creeping around in the dark. Our sin can take us to dark places. Jesus had warned Peter and the disciples many times about his sufferings to come. We read one of them just a few minutes ago. But when the time really came, when the time for his suffering really came, all the Lord's words were like he never, ever spoke them. Peter couldn't remember a single word Jesus ever said. When we're under stress, when you're under stress, isn't it hard to think about anything but our problems? It's like our, our brains are so full of worries, we don't have any room to remember one thing God ever said. If you've ever been there, then you know exactly what Peter is going through. Let's notice, too, that Peter's change of venue, moving from the courtyard onto the porch, didn't help Peter one bit. When we run away from our problems, all we do is take our problems with us. Running away is a relocation of our trouble, 
not a solution. Luke's gospel tells us that an hour passed between Peter's first denial and the second one. This had to be the longest hour of Peter's life. Verse 7, he says, again, he was denying it. Again, Peter was denying that he was with Jesus. The imperfect tense of the Greek verb to deny means that Peter went off on an extended denial. This denial was more adamant and more verbal than the first one. Peter was in a tailspin and he couldn't stop himself. It just kept getting worse and worse. Ever been there? Peter was separated from Jesus. He put distance between himself and Jesus. So this hot-blooded man of devotion, his blood was turning into ice water. Let's look at the third and final denial. Verse 70 to 71. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But Peter began to curse and swear, I do not know this fellow you're talking about. John's Gospel gives us a very interesting fact about this. I'm going to put John 18:26 on the screen so you can see this. This is really interesting. One of, the slave, one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Isn't that interesting? Remember when Peter was in the garden of Gethsemane, he drew his sword and he cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Well, look where Peter is now. He's at the high priest's house. Malchus has relatives, and those relatives can pick Peter out of a police lineup. This is the third accusation against Peter, and it's the boldest. And so Peter's denial is the boldest. It's laced with curse words. Peter was a fisherman. I imagine he knew how to swear. And it was likely that Peter was also swearing by God's name. Look at his answer again. Peter answers, I do not know this fellow you are talking about. <coughs> Peter cannot even bring himself to saying the name of Jesus. He calls him this fellow and this man. Have you noticed in your own life that when we're sinning, it's very, very hard, if not impossible, to speak the name of Jesus, except perhaps in vain? In verse 72, our last verse, Peter hits rock bottom when he finally, he finally remembers the word of the Lord. Let's look at verse 72. And immediately a cock crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter began to weep. I want to show you Luke's account of this. This is Luke 22, verses 60 to 62, because Luke records another detail for us. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as Peter was speaking, the rooster crowed. See verse 61? The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will, you will disown me three times. And Peter went outside and wept early. Perhaps Jesus could see him from upstairs. Or maybe they were leading Jesus downstairs at that time. But can you imagine? Can you imagine what it was like for Peter to lock eyes with Jesus in that moment? 
you and I realize what it would be like for us to lock eyes with Jesus when we're in the midst of the sin in our life? Peter broke down and he vanished into the night. Peter loved Jesus with all his heart. But he just disowned Jesus to his face. I'm sure as Peter left, he had to think Jesus now would rightfully disown him too. We can't leave Peter here. Even though we're at the end of the chapter, can't leave Peter here. Please just peek ahead. Mark, well, Pastor Mark's going to cover this with us later, but please peek ahead to Mark 16, verses 5 to 7. Because this is maybe one of the sweetest places in the Bible because the resurrected Lord is going to send Peter a personal message to restore him. What we're going to read here it takes place just a few days later on what we call Easter Sunday. Jesus is risen and the women go to the tomb and they find the stone rolled away. Mark 16, verses 5 to 7. And they entered the tomb. They saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? Well, go. Tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Oh, my gosh. The resurrected Lord just sent this love letter to Peter. Nothing, nothing compares to the love and grace of our Lord to accept us and restore us when we've really blown it. When Peter meets Jesus in Galilee, Jesus will fully reinstate Peter and give him kingdom work to do. Let's compare the two miserable disciples in chapter 14 of Mark. Peter, he disowned Jesus. Judas, he betrayed Jesus. Judas was very sorry. But Judas never repented. Judas never asked for forgiveness. Judas killed himself. Peter was very sorry. But Peter did repent. He did seek forgiveness from the Lord. And Peter? Peter became the leader of the new church. If you're sitting here today thinking you've done something so bad in your past or in the present, that God will never, ever forgive you again, that God doesn't love you anymore, and that God has no place for you to serve him, please, please be encouraged by what we just read about Peter. Peter proves that the love and grace of our Lord knows no boundaries. And he will always, 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 always forgive and restore a truly repentant heart. I'm going to close with just a thought and then we're going to pray. Here's the thought. Throughout our study of the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Peter <coughs> Peter in shining moments. We've seen Peter in lots of not so shining moments. But previously, Peter was always so close to Jesus that the Lord was right there to give P Peter instant affirmation or correction as needed. But do you see what happened in chapter 14? Peter put distance between himself and the Lord, and he suffered greatly for it. And chapter 14 ends with Peter weeping, weeping bitter tears. This ending, however, of chapter 14 was not the end of Peter. It was the beginning of Peter. 
It was the starting place for Peter to face his sin, confess his sin, and repent and be fully restored to Jesus and go on stronger and steadier than ever before. As we close in prayer, I can't just dismiss us in prayer and let us go out as if nothing's happened. I want to give us all just a moment of quiet, just 30 seconds, just, just a moment of quiet prayer. Because, you know, if today, if today you and Jesus are so close, you're sitting up, snuggled up against him today, then just praise him in this quiet time. Thank him. But if you need a tape measure or you need mile markers to measure the distance between you and your Savior, make this time of prayer right now your starting place. Face your sin. Face the reason that you put distance between yourself and the Lord. Confess your sin. Jesus already knows it anyway. And repent as you fall into his loving arms.